0: Use this pandemic to figure out how to see the future and then beat the competition to it. To succeed, stop whining about it, go optimize it. You just make up your mind, you're not gonna fail. You gotta find a way.
1: Welcome to the Supply Chain Show, featuring compelling interviews with remarkable supply chain leaders. Listen in as our guests share their learnings and insights on today's supply chain challenges. I'm your host, Crystal Lee, a principal consultant with Oliver White. This week, we are in part two of our interview with guest Dana Vogt, Vice President of Supply Chain from Cummins. Today, Dana tells us how we helped turn around a business plagued by long-standing delivery issues through a remarkable supply chain transformation.
0: We were doing bad as a business. Our quality was bad, which I was working on, and it felt like we had good new products coming along and good field fixes for the ones we had. We had a terrible reputation for delivery, Jim Lyons told me, he says, come on, Dana, we're going to a meeting with his boss, his name was Anant, and we're gonna explain what we're doing about fixing these late turbos. You know, manufacturing blamed it on purchasing, purchasing blamed it on marketing for selling things we couldn't build. And then after lunch, the manufacturing leader, which was a 40-year, hardcore, tough, respected manufacturing leader, stood up at the front of the room and said, we don't know what to do to fix it. And Jim, we're asking you to assign Dana to lead us. And I come home told my wife when I got back, I said, hey, it's gonna be a busy holiday for me because we gotta assemble a team and we gotta get to work on this. And we had 23,000 turbos that we were late delivery on,
1: 23,000. I still remember the graphic. So in my head, I can see the graph. We plotted those, right? We put them on a picture. We put it on plaques for the team after the fact.
0: Yeah, yeah. We were terrible. And as a result, the plants that we served, the customers that we served had no idea how to plan. They were just ordering stock. They were just ordering anything that we could give them because they didn't know, and then they would, it's like the tail wagging the dog. Um, they would build engines that they had turbos for. And anyway, it was terrible, and I committed myself. And this is where you and I came back together again, because I started to assemble a team. I'm not, I'm not gonna belabor the point, but I actually was thinking about the skills that I wanted, and I wanted tenacious people. But I'll have, I've never told you this before, but if you go back and think about the people that I had on that team, um, I picked people that had something to prove. People have either had rough patches in their careers or was um, willing to get in the fight with me and and you were one of those and I remember the most important part of this project was actually um, picking the measure. Now, I had some coaching from the marketing guy, a real smart guy. Um, had one of those degrees from the Ivy League school kind of guys. Um, It was percent on time. And it was like 96%. Uh, He was trying to put the marketing spin on it. Right. Right. And I thought, well, if you stop the next 10 cars that drove down third street and said, we're at 96% delivery, what would they do? He said, well, they would probably give you a high five. You're doing real good. But the reality is that we were doing really bad. Right. And one of the things I'd learned from my days in safety is you never talk about OSHA incident rate when you talk about safety, because it normalizes, it takes the sting out of people. And so when I reported safety from then on, I always reported it as the number of people that I hurt. Mm. I, I didn't try to genericize it. And so I thought about it real hard and we said, well, look, if everybody's calling it arrears, I think that's kind of a funny name, um, but we'll use it. I want to count whole turbos that were short, that were not delivering. And so we got the project started, um, created a cadence, that chart yes. when we first started it looked quite ugly. Yes. And it was tracking the number of arrears. And I did a unthinkable thing, uh, and Crystal, you helped me with it, is we, we split it out by plant so it wasn't anymore that it was a Jim Lyons problem we took it to the next level and said here's the plants that are not delivering and then we had another cut on here's the suppliers that were preventing us from being successful so purchasing was in the game and true to what dave said during that initial meeting in december they did everything i asked them to do if i said i wanted meetings every um if you remember it was monday tuesday and thursday
1: yep at 7 a.m
0: it's 7 a.m A stand-up meeting It was a global call and if it lasted more than 30 minutes, I was a complete failure because all I wanted to know is what'd you do for me lately? And what help do you need? And we moved on. And actually, I remember doing an interview of, you were at Charleston at the time, there was a purchasing guy, his name was William Richardson. When I was interviewing him on what does he think I ought to do, again, mouth closed, ears open, I'm talking to people who do the work every day. And he said, I'll tell you what, um, cause I was asking him about, you know, what are we, what should we call this? And I didn't want to, I could see a t-shirt with arrears on it. Right. And I didn't, <laughs> that would be good. And he said, I'll tell you what he said, we should call it freedom. And I said, why should you call it freedom? And he says, cause I want to be free of this bull crap that we go to every day, all the meetings I've got to attend, all the excuses that I've got to make. I want, it's amazing to me if I could just be free from that, that I could do my day job and we could be super successful and we'd feel better. And that was another one of those moments where I just stole. It's like the guy on the assembly line said, let's build them backwards. William said, let's call it freedom. And that name um, turned out to be a battle cry.
1: It did. Delivery buys freedom. I remember that.
0: Yeah. And so we used some Oliver White help for, um, for that team. Les Brooks um, was the, the guy that, that helped me at the time. We went on a relentless pursuit of staying focused. And I remember a couple of points in that graph is that people started to see the line move down because we created the right measure. And when they saw the number of arrears come down, I created uh, celebration points along the way and made it a big darn deal. Now, I don't know if you're at 23,000 and now you're under your sub 20,000, it doesn't feel like the time to celebrate but I realized that people had lost so long that they didn't know what it felt like to win. So I created winning moments and we continued the march. And I remember we got down around 10,000 and things stalled and actually things got temporarily worse. And and I had to push a little bit harder and we finally broke that 10,000 barrier. And the people, even the hourly on the lines started thinking we can do this and we kept improving. And I remember Crystal and I don't want to embarrass you, but, Another one of those phone calls we had where you were telling me that I was being unrealistic, I think is the term you used. Yes. Insisting on zero.
1: Yes, I remember that. There were leaders that thought that you had signed your own pink slip by saying zero. Do you remember that? There were other leaders that thought never going to happen. And I remember calling you and thinking, I'm going to share this with him. I'm going to tell him that he's crazy. <laughs> we can't
0: get to zero. Just like that TV commercial, crazy is my middle name. <laughs> anyway, um, you weren't the only person. In fact, one of my um, close friends and associates at the time, Chuck Newsmom told me the same thing. And you were lucky because you were on the phone, Chuck. He was at the end of my, my office. And I, I absolutely blistered him because I, I didn't want what I felt at that moment is that my team wasn't with me, that somehow or another we were getting weak. Right. And if you looked at Chuck, you know how at Cummins, when you write an email, there's your name and your title, and then you can put a slogan in there. Yes. Chuck changed his sign off right after he left my office, that zero is the only answer. Now, I don't want people to think that this was just guts and brawn that improved. We actually found out that the planners weren't planning the way they should. The whole supply chain was broken. Suppliers were shipping what they wanted to, not what we needed or ordered, and we didn't have any teeth in it. Um, the plants would build the easy schedules. You know, They would try to, they call it an economic order quantity, like, hey, we'll just build the same turbo, and we'll build 500 of them. Well, I only need 200 of those. I need 300 of the others, but they would build all 500 because it made their efficiency numbers look better. Um, well, we untangled it all, and again, people, listen to what we were saying. And I actually remember, Crystal, the day that we had the call and I asked people how many arrears do you have? And it was zero, zero. And we had two or three weeks ahead of that, where there most plants had zero and and a couple plants, Huddersfield was one that had a few. And so the other plants saw what was going on. Now think about that that you would think that a company like Cummins or any other company would do this naturally. But plants that knew Huddersfield was struggling, that had capability to build those same turbos, wanted zero so bad that they were building turbos not on their schedule and shipping them to Huddersfield so Huddersfield could say zero. That's right. It was, it was wild. And when we finally achieved zero, um, it was a moment of celebration. And I remember um, our profits during that period were through the roof because we shipped an additional 23,000 turbos that we had not planned on. That's right. Even our financial plans were built on failure. That's right. So it was a big moment for us. And to be honest with you, the only thing that we changed several structural things, and they got smarter, but the single largest thing I think was teaching people what it felt like to win. And that was sustained. Now, I will tell you that I did find out after I'd left CTT, I went back to the engine business, that they changed the measure to some kind of percent on time or something else and began to slip again. And I had to to come back and remind them on creating the clarity. So picking the right measure, I think, was incredibly important. Before I left CTT, though, um, I realized that the personal energy that i was investing as well as you crystal and chuck and several others um, as soon as we got reassigned to different work if we didn't sustain it it would go away and so this is when i jumped headlong in with oliver white and we launched synchronized business planning it was a way actually for us to put structure and system in place and routinize it to a point that You would see yourself very early getting out of control if you were and understand where the breakdowns are and allow you to be successful because it's simple. Um, Who wouldn't want to know what products you're building? Who wouldn't want to know how many you're going to sell? Who wouldn't want to know if your supply chain's capable? Who wouldn't want to know how much it's worth to you? Right. Well, I tell you who would want to know that that's that business team, which is the fifth leg of that to say, are we heading the right direction? Because they're like the compass. It was brilliant. Um, I worked for a remarkable lady. Her name was Tracy Embry.
1: Yes, another remarkable leader.
0: She replaced Jim Lyons. And she asked me, she says, Hey, Dana, you've been masquerading as a quality leader long enough. I want you to be my supply chain leader. So now I'm her supply chain leader. And she wants me to help sustain the improvement that we made. So um, it's just that easy, right? Let's just implement SVP. Well, as you know, that's a complete culture change for any company to go through. Yes. It requires you to stop and kill processes that you're currently running, flawed as they may be. And I'll add one more word to that. Cherish processes. Yes. People created them on their own. So asking them to give up those things to do this new SBP thing was uh, quite a deal. And so I told Tracy, I said, this is not for the weak. Uh, of heart and you as a leader you've got to be relentless and have focus and be clear and wow she's all those things and so we had and you were there we had our SVP kickoff Oliver White was there to help us um, say the right things do the right things and charter the work earlier I reminded you that I was a sheriff's deputy and so there was this thing at the end called a commitment phase it was just me creatively thinking about how to do that. And so I brought in the Sergeant from the Sheriff's Department, his name's Jimmy Green and he's a rough dude, even looks rough, shaved head. He looks like the cop's cop. And um, he came in and we had the big poster what we had committed to do. And Tracy had made a comment appropriately because she knew what I was gonna do. She said she wanted people's fingerprints all over this. And so rather than, rather than just sign a piece of paper, the sheriff's deputy inked our fingers, and we had to put our fingerprint on that poster, and we had to sign underneath. There was one guy, by the way, um, on the staff that didn't wanna be fingerprinted, so I figured he had a sorted past. Well, anyway, that, that was kind of a, a cutesy thing that we did, but it meant a lot because she said that we were gonna do this, and there wasn't any room for any dissension that we're making this decision as a team. And once we did, we had hard work ahead, and she didn't want people to be straying And I'll not embarrass anybody, but there was a couple times in that process that people would want to go back to their cherished process. And Tracy, being the abundant leader that she is, would have that same kind of phone call with them that I had with you on that Saturday.
1: And that fingerprinting lived on. You'll remember as we rolled it out to every country, every location, we took the one pager that had our synchronized business planning process on it. And each team around the world at every plant got to fingerprint and sign it. Yep. And I remember traveling as I as I would go back to visit them and, and check on progress and coach them through issues, I would see copies of that with all the fingerprints. Yeah. all around the office. People would have them at their desk. It became iconic yeah. for the for the program.
0: I think it's important like deciding that we're going to focus on whole issues like arrears, deciding we're going to call it freedom because that translated in every language in the world, everybody understood that. Deciding we were going to do it together to to sustain the improvement that we had made in Project Freedom and do synchronized business planning. I transformed the business. Now I couldn't help myself later in, in my career. I would always, when I go to plants, especially engine plants, I'd ask them how turbo turbo delivery was and they would look at me stupid like, well, it's okay. Why? And I was just thinking, I remember when.
1: Right. When it wasn't.
0: Yep. And so there were, I, I don't want to soft sell this thing. There were a lot of technical tools, skills, bad habits we had to break, new habits we had to pick up. So don't, don't hear me as just saying we muscled it through. There was more science to it than that. But we created a win. And I remember the day we achieved zero, I doubled back and I called William Richardson back at Charleston. And I said, there you go. Now you're free. Yeah. That's probably not the most scientific or you know, the educational thing. But I think the thing that's important about that truly transformation was uh, teaching everybody what it feels like to win, giving them the tools, the resources, the, the processes to make that happen, and then allowing them to get that feeling, and then putting in a process to allow that to sustain itself so that they wouldn't easily let it slip or it wouldn't slip and nobody would know it. They would know it like every month.
1: Did you ever think it was going to fail at any point along the time?
0: I don't know. I, that's a, that's a good question. I, being a human, I think about those things, but I also know my own tenacity. It was never about me, Crystal. Um, Think about all the people that were working weekend. Remember how you felt when you were working Saturdays and Sundays? Think about all the people. It's not just the leaders, not those three people that were blaming each other, that were crying to each other. This had a trickle down effect to everybody. And I don't know, I just, you just make up your mind, you're not going to fail. You got to find a way. It's like that Apollo 13 movie, a failure is not an option. Right. You just got to deliver. Later in my career, I realized that I had a brand, you know, that like a company has a brand and that brand was first and foremost, um, that I loved what I was doing. I loved the company I was working for. There was no doubt. In fact, um, I had to stop drinking because if I drank two or three beers and somebody would say something bad about Cummins, I'd want to fight (laughs) that I had a brand that I wasn't afraid to surround myself with a diverse team. Not because I was trying to achieve a diversity goal, it's because I realized that I could take the best from everywhere and have the best of the best, and therefore we could deliver. And then I had a brand that I would always deliver and I would do it the right way. I'm not gonna tell you my whole life has been a screaming success because there's been two or three times that I've disappointed myself, but when I look back at that, I just say I didn't work hard enough. I didn't push hard enough, I didn't listen enough. I didn't go investigate, I didn't go get help. You would think that as a supply chain leader, you're, you, you're supposed to know it all. Um, the moment you realize you don't and that you need help and that you're willing to ask for that help, whether it be outside consultation or whether it be somebody internal, you, you just gotta be willing. Stand up in that wire tainer safely and say, what should we do? Abe Lincoln said, give the people the facts and the nation will be saved. And I've got a career built on listening and then fearlessly delivering.
1: And I feel incredibly honored and blessed to have been part of your tribe along those years. And um, as you know, I've, I've moved on now and am helping other organizations do those similar things, but I am doing that because of the experiences that I had with you at Cummins. The stories that you tell, although they are from many years ago, are extremely meaningful to me and are, are very much part of my story. So I am I'm glad to have been part of that. I want to thank you for being here with us today to share these stories. I think they are truly remarkable and, and certainly resonate very deeply with me. And I do believe that other supply chain leaders out there right now, it's a very difficult time to be a supply chain leader. I think The word supply chain has been in the media more these last uh, six, seven months than ever before. President's talking about supply chain and it's just right in front of everyone and it's a really difficult time with all the uncertainty. So um, I think many of the things that you've shared today will be encouraging and inspiring to others as they head out on their own version of Project Freedom.
0: I would offer this last suggestion. Another thing that John Yoder taught me is never miss the opportunities that a crisis presents. Translated, that just means that even when you got a tough hand of cards that's dealt, to figure out how to play those cards better than anybody else will make you successful. And so, yeah, it's tough being a supply chain leader. It's even tougher now. I, I'm still really good friends with my old boss who was a supply chain leader for Cummins. And when I listen to some of the things going on, I know that with pandemics and this, um, what do they call it, isolationist posture that several countries are making, it's tough, right? And it changes our blueprint of how we want to deliver. And so I would just suggest to you that there are more kids going through college now wanting to change their their majors to supply chain because they see supply chain. Like, it's because of a crisis. More people are talking about Even my parents, who I don't think ever uttered the term in their life, are talking about the broken supply chains. And I'm thinking, where did it get that from? Seize the moment. Listen. Figure out. I know it's a crappy set of cards. I know it. If it were easy, here's the statement I would make, if it were easy, we'd hire less qualified people, but it's not easy. Therefore, use this pandemic and use these new market dynamics that's going on to figure out how to see the future and then beat the competition to it. Because at the end of the day, companies make things and sell them. Now there's lots of other functions within a company, but I am proud, unapologetic, that I've worked in the supply chain my whole life. And it's our moment to succeed, stop whining about it, quit blaming others and go optimize it. And you'll be better for it. You'll be more resilient, you'll be a better leader. I appreciate you asking me to share my thoughts today.
1: Thank you, Dana. Well, thank you for listening to The Supply Chain Show. If you like the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you stream your content. If you want to know more, check out my website, crystallee.net. Until next time.